All right, boys, our, our another monthly roundtable. Uh, we were just talking off air real quick, and I just I guess we'll just hop into it. Uh, Jeremiah, you said you were uh, getting ready for a little photo shoot here soon, so I'm curious to hear about that. Yeah, um, I mean, as the listeners know, Brandon and I have been prepping for the last couple months, and it started out as a mini cut for a trip to Bali. Trip to Bali got canceled, decided, hey, might as well get – a good bit more shredded yet and kind of just see what we can do here so we were prepping for a photo shoot i think tentatively the date is tuesday october 25th i believe so That's we right. have what just under four weeks left here feeling good though yeah. i think honestly i think brandon can give a better objective opinion than i can i feel i feel solid i know Weight is always kind of, I know even like going into our initial consult call, I mean, you and I, Brandon, had talked about weight kind of like, I think for most dudes, it's hard to let go of that. I know for me still like dipping into the one low 180s, I'm like, fuck, dude, I just want to be heavier than this. Like I always, you know, like it's, I'm going to someday be like 220 and just fucking jacked and shredded at the same time. So it's always kind of a hit to the ego, but at the same time. Man, I feel a lot better than I did last time I was out this way. I also know right now, like first photo shoot that I did was, which is definitely the most shredded I've been in the past. Um, I'm at 183 right now, and I'm pretty confident I have a decent amount more muscle than I did then. Going into the peak week for that shoot, I was 185. And we still have like four weeks left. So I'm pretty confident we're going to be quite a bit more peeled. It's an interesting thing too. I don't like have mirrors in my gym or anything like that. I don't really even think I have anywhere with good lighting. So for me, like all I see is like looking down at my belly. And I don't think you ever like feel like you look shredded. But occasionally I'll like catch myself in the mirror and like see a bunch of ab veins or something like that. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, we're we're moving along. So I don't feel like I have right now. I honestly don't even think about it that much as far as how shredded I am, but I'm feeling pretty good. Um, I think we're going to bring a great look to the shoe. Absolutely. So just to follow up with that, like obviously Jeremiah and I have known each other for quite some time. You know, we've been on podcasts together for the last couple of years. Uh, we did a mentorship prior to starting to work together. So, but even then, I, when he first came to me about the topic of coaching or, you know, inquiring about working together, I had him send over, you know, um, a collection of photos, both from different coaches that he had worked with, as well as different phases, you know, the top of his building phase, his last photo shoot. And then I also had him send over his like favorite photo shoot, actual photos that are edited, as well as photos from that day in regular lighting, fasted, like um, check-in photos. Because I wanted to see, there's a big differentiation between oh, yeah. what you look like when you peak for that hour, you know, just like we do on stage, as compared to what you woke up and look like. So throughout the process, I'm very big into the visual aspect of tracking progress. And I think that's one thing that I have a, I've developed a really good skill on. And that's something I can't teach my mentees and stuff. Like I have a skill of looking at physiques and knowing what's going on due to the fact that I've worked with over a thousand people at this point, I've looked at thousands and upon thousands of photos. So I get a lot of biofeedback just from the photos itself. And I actually, my check-in process, and I always tell my clients this off the bat, I am looking at your photos first and foremost. I am looking and trying to get an objective measurement of what I think occurred within your physique throughout the course of the week. And I actually don't look at any of their subjective data before doing that because I don't want to be influenced by the stress that they've went through or lack of sleep or any of these other parameters that they inform me about. I want to go in, I look at their photos, I pull them up on two monitors that I have, and I look at their photos from the, the present week compared to last week. And then 
over the course of the last few weeks. So with Jeremiah, especially this week, man, uh, you have come in and, you know, I'm not just saying this because we're on the podcast, but you, your photos, both post-training on Tuesday night, as well as yesterday's check-in, which was Wednesday morning, uh, your rate of progress is great. So we're right where I want you to be as far as a photo shoot is concerned. I believe you're already in better shape than you've ever been in. So I, agree. I have no shadow of a doubt that we're going to bring your best look. Um, I also want to touch on the fact, and I, I understand this because I coach, you know, lifestyle clients, I coach, you know, high level coaches like yourself, but then I also coach, you know, I just got back from Texas where I was peaking, you know, one of the top men's physique pros um, at the San Antonio pro. So the weight, it's it's always going to be a thing. This is something within our culture, especially as a man, women are always going to focus on a lighter scale weight than they probably should be, or then they believe they believe that a lighter scale weight is going to yield a better look, whereas generally it's not. And guys are always going to focus on having a heavier scale weight than they probably realistically can be and be lean. But what we have to realize is that your depleted scale weight is not your actual weight. So weight maintenance, right. if we look at the research, it's between one to 3%. So if you were two, 200 pounds, really your fluctuations could be between 200 pounds and 206 pounds, essentially. Mm -hmm. But when you are, you know, right now we're in a dieted down state, you know, we've pulled down calories, your expenditure's up. So right now you are glycogen depleted. You have low glycogen storage. So for every gram of glycogen that we've lost, we've lost three to four grams of water. And so once we get through the process of just getting you, I mean, you're pretty peeled right now, but getting you skinless, essentially, then when we carb load you, you know what I mean? That scale weight's going to go oh, up yeah. and we're going to be back to a fuller, tighter, drier look at, say, 185, say, 186. So, for instance, I just peaked uh, Anthony uh, Scalzo, one of my pro clients down in San Antonio, and his scale weight got down to the 180s, like 180. And but by the time he was loaded, fully carb loaded, um, and peaked, he was 184.8, so right under 185 um, the morning of stepping on stage. So, you know, there's a big differentiation, but that was where his look was best. So, you know, it's not always about looking at the scale, like just like if you're a competitor or you're going for a photo shoot, no one cares what you what your scale weight is. It's all about that look. And that's really what I try to get my clients to focus on because we often can get, and I know this from a competitive stake, we get so fixated on the scale, you know, both in terms of whether you're a competitor or a photo shoot, um, you know, a model like, like I was for many years or just a lifestyle client, you get so fixated on the scale, you're chasing that or you know, in, in the case of females, they're chasing the scale weight when in actuality, they should be trying to leverage the um, the likelihood of them going through body recomposition. But at the same time, a lot of guys don't get in good enough shape because they're scared of seeing their scale weight drop. And I've seen right. that many times with competitors where they're not peeled from the back, they're not in condition, and then they show up to the shoot, to the contest to the vacation and they're not happy with their look because they focus so much they fed themselves more they decided to have a refeed because they felt you know small or they didn't look big in clothing in actuality mo most of us aren't going to look that big in clothing it's it's all about the physique you present when you're pumped you're ready for the photo shoot and it's something we all suffer through but i'm very confident in what jeremiah and i are bringing uh you know i've been excited to be a part of this process this has been great and especially like we have such an open relationship that it's really good to get your objective feedback and knowing that I'm going to give you objective feedback, but just to hear about your experience in comparison to previous years when you've gotten lean, but not this lean, it's been a, a validating process to be able to take you through a fat loss phase where you are getting the leanest you've ever gotten and mm -hmm. you're doing it in a way that I, I can't say this is more sustainable because we're not going to sustain this low right. level of body fat. However, it's been more bearable and more manageable. 
And it's, oh, yeah. it, that's really my objective with my clients is, hey, if you're trying to get down to the leaner, leaner levels of body fat, like that is not sustainable. We cannot sustain that. However, I'm going to make this process as easy and manageable as pro- as possible for you. And then as soon as we get done with that objective, we hit the shoot, we get, get to the stage, I'm going to be able to bring you back out due to all my experience working with clients, but also, you know, how, how nuanced and how, uh, you know, in depth I've gotten with metabolic adaptations and mitigating those. So we're in a good spot. Yeah, man, I'm feeling great. And it's also cool to have so much data from doing this for so long and tracking. I mean, it was pretty cool too. I know like two check-ins ago, before we took the deload, I was feeling pretty rough mentally, honestly, where I didn't, and I was objectively, I couldn't even see that until a couple days later, like after we'd started to deload and I was like, damn, my head was, <laughs> I felt so much better after that. And it's, it's funny how I think for, mo- for most clients, like I see the same thing where if you're normally a very, very motivated individual and all of a sudden we have like this big drop where your mood completely changes, your motivation and sh- train completely changes. Like we need to take some time and just pull away. But I think like you being the person in that is so much harder to see than someone else coaching you through that. But it was cool to like this very recently, then I revisited like body measurements from like the same time I was this way previously. And it was cool. To, and then again, like there are some room for error here, but it's cool to see like thighs were like half inch to three quarter inch bigger. My arms are actually like an inch bigger, which I still feel like I have tiny arms, but it's cool to see like the also tangible again, like I do think I'm a good bit bigger at the size than last time I was around this weight as well. But yeah, man, I'm feeling great about where we're at. Really, I feel like it hasn't been until the last week that I've even noticed too much hunger. I honestly don't know if part of that is just stress. I think it's also been very helpful that last couple of months have honestly been fucking crazy from a business perspective. Um, And just like what we have going on, even like Brandon, we haven't had very many. I know you've been super busy. And also for me, it's like I haven't had time to like set up our normal podcast nearly as frequently. So honestly, that's been super helpful because on Saturday and Sunday when I don't have a lot going on, then it's like my body, I'm noticing my body just feels a lot heavier. And then it's like, wow, I just feel dead. But throughout the work week, it's been great. I think that honestly helps quite a bit. But yeah, I'm feeling good about where we're at. Absolutely. That's the utility of staying busy. So there's like, I always say this comment, like for every give me, there's a gotcha. So when you're super busy, it's going to raise your stress. It could elevate your appetite and your hunger responses because we do see that cortisol, a lot of people will get when they have a, a overproduction of cortisol, they will tend to seek out more hyperplatable foods. They'll have more cravings for carbs and and for fatty foods. And essentially they're looking for comfort through food. So when you're highly stressed, you are more susceptible to that. But then in the other case, you know, when we look at like the psychology, American Psychology Association questionnaires, they say about when people are stressed, right under 50% of people overeat, whereas right over 30% of people undereat. So it's really person specific. And like for me, in my case, you know, I might think about food more when I'm stressed, but I'm so busy that I lock into that objective and I get distracted from those, the hunger signaling. So I'm able to essentially stay so busy that it distracts myself from the hunger that I'm experiencing during that moment. And so this is something that we can leverage, you know, within the, you know, the place we are within our businesses, because, you know, like you Monday through Friday, you're extremely busy. And the only time you're really noticing, you know, heightened hunger is on those weekends weekends when you do have more downtime, when you're able to think about it more. So it's even like just, you know, taking a moment to take a step back and say, am I feeling homeostatic hunger or hedonic hunger? Is this a craving or is this true hunger? Do I need to get a meal or is this, you know, just based on the fact that I'm bored or I'm stressed or, you know, really differentiating between the two types of hungers. 
And then being able to take a step back and decide, you know, hey, how can I mitigate this? You know, I know that when I'm super busy, I don't experience these, this hunger. Like I might be in the same physiological state where I need energy, but I'm not experiencing it to the heightened degree that I am now that I don't have things going on. So that's when you can call a friend, go for a walk, you know, watch your favorite television show, do something with, you know, um, your girl and and things of that sort. So it's it's nice that we're able to see examples and be able to look at things and say, all right, this really works during the week. Maybe I can incorporate things that are along the same route or along the same you know, um, method within my weekends that are a little bit more laid back, but they're helping with hunger mitigation strategies. I feel, I feel like that's probably why you see steps be like so helpful in terms of like weight maintenance and like people regulate their appetite much better too. Cause like you said, it's not, yeah, they're obviously burning more, their energy expenditure is going up by moving more. But like you said, it's almost just like they just, there's less time to think about food and and, and whatnot. So it just gives you something to do and you just kind of stay, stay distracted there with it. Um, so I think that's Absolutely. where steps can be super helpful and in, in incorporating that into your day. Or like you said, just finding anything um, throughout the day to just kind of distract you from it. Plus, you know, obviously where Jer's at, like he's looking super lean right now, definitely leanest and biggest. I've seen him since I've known him. And like, you know, when you get that lean, it just, man, freaking adherence is just so hard. I feel like people, I don't, I think people underestimate how tough it is to actually adhere to a calorie deficit for a long period of time. Right. Um, and so, you know, I just, that's one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is that's just, <laughs> it's just tough to do. Right. And most people can't stick to it when it gets super tough like that, when it gets, when you get as lean as, Jer is. And so, um, you know, I'm sure that's, that's probably something you're battling as well too, where, you know, you're getting leaner, you're feeling a little bit more beat up and, you know, you're probably wanting to probably eat a little bit more tasty food and and just adherence is getting tougher at this point um, in the process. Honestly, dude, I think the fact that I haven't tried to play the flexible dieting game has helped me so much in that regard. I talked about this previously, but again, like the first time I did this, it was like, okay, how can I fit as much Chick-fil-A as possible into my day? <laughs> yeah. How can I, or whatever, how can I work three glasses of wine? And there have been very, very few occasions where I've deviated from the structure that we've created. Honestly, that's helped me so much. Like, I feel like that's helped me stay so much more full because we do prioritize like my, my micronutrients are so solid. My food volume is so solid as well. I think like I'm not playing that game where I'm trying to like, I'm pulling away from my peri-workout nutrition because I want to make sure again, like I can have like two Chick-fil-A sandwiches instead of one. I do miss Chick-fil-A, of course, but <laughs> within that still, I feel like that's helped so much. Again, I feel like from a mental perspective, it's just been so much easier and again, it's hard to like, it's hard to separate that from just my lifestyle being so much different and having a lot more going on than last time where I don't really have as much time to think about it. But I do think that that's kind of an underrated aspect of that as well. Absolutely. I'm big into setting my clients up for success, especially as we go through the dieting phase, because I do happen to take a lot of intermediate clients or advanced clients and I get them to really lean states, probably, you know, leaner than they've ever gotten before. So I need to get them past these barriers. And, and honestly, one of the number one strategies that I found to do so is throughout the course of the diet, I lower the palatability of the diet essentially. And so within that, you know, we might start out and they're at this higher calorie load. And they're able to fit in more flexible foods and more tasty foods and things of that sort because they have the calorie budget to play with and they aren't sacrificing satiety and fullness to do so. But as we get deeper into the diet, and I'm currently in a dieting phase myself, I have a photo shoot I'm peaking for tomorrow. So I'm deep into it myself. And I do the same thing with my own dietary approach where 
the deeper I get into a diet, the more I'm susceptible to feeling metabolic adaptation. So my needs lowering. I'm also feeling, you know, my hunger signaling is skewed. So higher, you know, ghrelin levels and lower leptin levels. I'm feeling less satiated during my meals. So how do I mitigate that? Well, I look for low energy density. So low calorie, highly filling, you know, highly satiating foods that are going to have a lot of food volume, a lot of water content in them. They're going to fill up my stomach. So I get that stretch in the gastric receptors, you know, gastric uh, stretch receptors in the stomach. So it initiates that fullness response from the hypothalamus. And so it's really being able to be in line with what your physiology is doing. And then also what your psychology is doing, because at the same time, when I have played the, if it fits your macros game and played macro Tetris, I'm exposing myself to these foods that are, are, you know, we could call them trigger foods or things that we're more likely to passively overconsume, And they're also getting that meat with that dopamine hit. And I, I, you know, in the moment I'm eating them. And I always say, like, I'll, I'll tell clients this when I'm talking about food selection, if a food leaves you hunger and wanting more after finishing your, your, you know, calorie budget, that meal, say you had a 600, 700 calorie meal, if it leaves you wanting more after it's probably not a great and you're in a deep into a fat loss phase. This is context dependent, but if it's leaving you hunger after you finish the meal itself, rather than making you feel more satisfied, it's probably not a food that's well fit for your goal. And what I mean by that is it's not that it doesn't fit your macros because it does, but just because something fits your macros doesn't mean you need to make it fit. And I always tell my clients that because we have to leverage the things that we can do to mitigate hunger because one of the number one reasons people fall off a diet, whether it's during the diet itself or in the post-dieting phase is due to hunger. So hunger, you know, heightened hunger leads to a lack of adherence a lack of compliance and going off the diet and over consuming calories. So that's going to lead to weight regain or to stalling of progress. And there's so many other downstream effects from that. So if we can mitigate it as much as possible with our food selection, with our, you know, habits around our nutritional choices, then we're putting ourselves in the best, you know, the best position to succeed. So that's really my goal. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, and I think too, it's just like people hear that and they think, oh, there's not going to be any hunger, but definitely as you get leaner, like there's going to be some hunger. And like you mentioned, you just want to mitigate it as best as you can, but realizing too, that there is going to be some hunger involved in it. And I think that's important, uh, probably an important thing. You just have to realize it is going to happen. And then also on that, I'm, I'm sure too, like the, with the flexible approach too, you're likely probably missing out on some micros, like, like you talked about. And I'm sure that's definitely not going to help with how you feel overall. And um, just obviously not help with hunger at all. One, one thing I wanted to mention before we move on to this, you, Brandon, you brought it up earlier about the, and, and Jeremiah, so did you about the scale weight. I know when I was younger, this is probably when I was in my twenties, I was exactly that. Like I, I tried to just keep gaining weight to, cause like I thought I was just going to add muscle. Right. So I just kept trying to gain weight. And it was like, anytime I would see the scale weight go down I'd be like, Oh dude, I'm getting way too small. And it's like, really, oh, yeah. you just, you just, I wasn't as lean as I needed to be. And I didn't have as much muscle as I thought I actually had. And I think for sure, that's a big, a big issue for a lot of guys. I'm sure that they just aren't as lean as they think they are. And they just probably think they have more muscle. So they get a little nervous to, to go down. But like you said, you got to in order to lean out, you got to lose some, some body fat, uh, there to, to lean out and, and look better. Um, and Jer I wonder if you, I'm sure both you guys can hit on this too. There's always kind of that like weird stage, like after you gain weight and you first get into a, uh, fat loss phase, it's kind of that like weird, awkward stage where it's like, you just basically get smaller, but you're not like, haven't really lost any substantial amount of body fat yet. And so you just feel oh, like yeah. you just look smaller, but like not any leaner. Is that, did you, did you feel that this time around too? Or Oh yeah. You don't, you, you just feel like you got smaller, but you're just like looking skinny fat. I, I haven't felt that since I've been working with 
Brandon. Um, I kind of went through that stage. So, I mean, the start of my, my fat loss phase started in February where I was 212, came down to like right around 200. We took a diet break for a considerable period of time. Then I started working with Brandon and right around 199 to 200, I think we're down like 16 pounds in our work together. So I was already kind of past that point, right around like that 200 mark. I was feeling pretty good, not too terribly lean, but I could still like see the blurry outline of my abs. So I, I had kind of passed that point, but yeah, there is definitely a stage in there. And I think that's like the least fun place to be. I think that's also the place that's the hardest for a lot of dudes to push through is you do have to kind of get to that part where you do get a little bit more shredded to really uncover everything. But there's going to be for most guys, I think a stage, unless you're starting from a relatively lean point where you just look more skinny fat, then you just look smaller, but not more peeled than you did before. And your physique as a whole just looks worse. And I mean, we could say the same thing for building phase as well. Right? He spent a lot of time there, but I think that's the hardest thing for most guys to push through. And as you said, I think that's the period of time where a lot of guys are like, okay, well, I'm looking too small. I got to go back to building. Right. And then maybe I'll do this again in the future. And I think there is honestly, I think that periods for most people, like around one to two months, but you just kind of have to push through it. Yep. Cool. Uh, Brandon, anything uh, going on on your end, man? Yeah. So I just honestly just returned from San Antonio. I was out at the IFBB San Antonio Pro with one of my pro clients, Anthony Scalza. Um, so I peaked him for that this past weekend. Very productive, um, you know, weekend in terms of bringing a look that was much better. Now we have to keep in mind this is someone that's extremely advanced. Anthony's 15 years into training. He has been a pro for five plus years at this point and has been on the Olympia level stage. So anytime that I'm able to improve upon his physique, especially a physique that we've presented to the stage. So I've brought him to two pro shows in the past. They were both in 2020 and we far exceeded, you know, the physique that he had then. He came in full round peeled. Um, we brought up the areas which were the number one critiques of the judges in the fall of 2020, which was they wanted more chest fullness and more chest development, as well as more mid back and upper back. And that's exactly what we brought. And, you know, I have multiple pictures. I mean, I, I have thousands of pictures at this point about from the weekend and videos and, and really, you know, being able to analyze that, but it was a great experience and we, we documented it all. So it will be up on YouTube soon of the whole process of me peaking him his carb load. Um, and just going through the process of how do you get someone looking like this onto the stage to peak for essentially one hour of the day. And so it was uh, very nuanced, but it's great because I, I really like having the experience. I've worked with those on the Olympia level stage, like Anthony Pros. And then I also work with, you know, your lifestyle clients, lifestyle Lisa, that's um, a stay at home mom. And then Jim Pop Jim, who's a, a businessman that has, has a kid and, and, you know, a white picket fence house and stuff. So it's, it's a really nice, it keeps things very varied for me. And so since I've returned from, um, you know, San Antonio, I've gotten right back into the grind uh, of, you know, both dieting for myself because I do have a photo shoot tomorrow and I do have a couple more shoots. I have a couple magazines uh, that I have lined up. And um, yeah, so I actually had to push back a couple of the photo shoots just due to how busy I was business-wise. And so I pushed them back and gave myself a little bit more time dieting. Um, and so uh, I'm looking forward to doing a gym shoot tomorrow, uh, which will be for a magazine. And then from then, I have another shoot next week and I'll probably shut down my diet about uh, two weeks from now and go into more of a, you know, a reverse or go into more of a maintenance phase as I increase my my energy availability and, and just get myself into a, a good spot before the holiday season. Absolutely. Yeah. Anthony looked awesome, by the way. And um, I, he was, I think he was going to compete this weekend, right? But then with the hurricane and everything, he wasn't able to, to make it. 
Yeah, so we, we've been going back and forth the last 48 hours. So what ended up happening for anyone that's out there, um, so we had plans of doing two back-to-back shows. That's what we've done previously. Last season, which was 2020, we did the Texas Pro, the Battle of the Texas, one weekend. And then the next weekend, which was a weekend in October, so really around the same time of this year, two years ago, we did the Chicago Pro, which was held in Atlanta because it was during COVID. So I went and fl- flew down to Atlanta. I met him there and we did the show. So this year we decided, hey, I'll come out to Texas with you. Next weekend, I'm not going to be available because I have my own photo shoot, but I will peek you through the process. We'll get a trial run in Texas and then we'll really shoot for our main show was going to be this Fort Lauderdale show. So as many of you will know, there's these huge hurricane warnings. Um, so on Tuesday, he was given alert that all f- or his flight was canceled. So he tried to get other flights. Um, he was looking around everywhere you could go. And now right now he's about 18 hours away from Florida. And so that's the first thing. Second thing is um, he could not find any more flights. All flights have been canceled to Florida for the rest of the week. So he is he's unable to get a flight. His flight was canceled for Thursday going in. And then you know, he called me and and we obviously communicated about the fact that he might drive out there. And just honestly, at this point, he's highly stressed. It's an 18 hour trip that he would have to take by himself because he does have some friends out there. We had a videographer, Joey, come out with us as well as one of his other buddies for the initial Texas show, but they have to go back home. So they're flying right back into New York uh, this week. So he will be, he would be taking a rental, um, paying extra for all this. So really when it came down to it, I just kind of got on the phone with him and, or I just kind of spoke with him and I was like, listen, we've accomplished everything that we wanted to. We blew by your previous physique. We brought your best. We did it in person. We finished out your season exactly how, you know, we left it off the last time. And, and this is going to be Anthony's last show for quite some time because he really wants to take a focus. He's in my mentorship right now. He really wants to focus on, on coaching and really developing his in-person training business. And so we knew that. And that's why we wanted to do at least a few shows, but it just, it's not in the cards and we have to, I have a, a big interest in stoic philosophy and and that's really around the ideology or the notion that you can only control what's in your control and right now it's a state of emergency i don't want him risking his safety because it's not only impacting you know west um you know uh florida but the entire state at this point with with the warnings that they're giving us and it doesn't make sense to potentially you know have him driving multiple hours through this storm in an area he doesn't know to get to the show to be highly stressed to potentially have the show canceled due to the you know inclement weather like that's it's a state of emergency so I, i don't want him going through that i don't want him compromising his his health his safety um his mental state and then also at the same time, he's got a vacation right after with, you know, his his girlfriend, his longtime girlfriend, and they've had a long prep. So like, you know, I want him, he, he was willing to, you know, he we, we discussed potentially canceling the, the trip so he could do another show. And I just said, dude, this isn't worth it. Like the one thing I've really tried to integrate and to reinforce with Anthony and, and all my competitor clients is a lesson that I learned in life. And Jeff, you and I did a podcast on this about our lessons learned from fitness and competing, but bodybuilding and fitness in general, this can apply to anyone, whether you're a competitor or not. Fitness is a part of our lives. It is in our lives. And and this is coming from someone that has competed 15 times. I've made a full-time career over the last 14 years in fitness. And I have other aspects that I'm highly passionate about besides fitness. Uh, you know, I won't say I have the greatest social life because I'm a workaholic, but at the same time, like I have 
deep rooted passions outside of fitness. So I really tried to impress that upon my athletes. And I, I felt that the best decision for Anthony was to shut down the season and really focus on, Hey, enjoy the last couple of days you have in Texas, your flight's delayed. So enjoy yourself out there. Go to the alpha. He's shooting at alpha land right now. So Christian Guzman's gym, you know, you're with friends, you're with family, you know, have a good time while you're there, come back, you know, we start our post-show uh, recovery phase. And then next week you go out to vacation with your girl and you enjoy yourself and you, you, don't think about this prep because we accomplished what we wanted to. We had two goals. Bring your best package, you know, your best physique to the stage today. We did that. The only other thing was to get back to the Olympia stage, but we really don't have the, the number of opportunities needed. We had two shows to really do so. And so it's not lining up and we have to realize that, you know, maybe it wasn't meant to be for this season and we can always go back to that later in life, you know, and things that have, you know, there's never going to be a perfect time. So I don't want to say that, but there are more ideal times to tackle certain goals. So that's really where we're at. Yeah. I would imagine with like how lean he is and how good he looks right now that any little stressor like that's probably going to definitely play a bigger role in, in his look. And so just, you know, it would suck to work all that, you know, just put all this time and effort into it. And then just because of something like this, that happens, not have your, your best look that day or something Absolutely. like that. Cause I, I mean, I would imagine, right. I mean, you, you obviously know this better than me, but I would imagine that you probably aren't going to have like it. I'm sure there's a chance that he could still look great that day, but when you are highly stressed like that and have some stressful event like that happen and you know, he's got to drive 18 hours, like that is probably going to affect his physique in some way. Right. Well, definitely. I mean, it will impact. I even have him fly out early when he does shows because of the potential for water retention. And I have strategies to mitigate that, but we never know what the stress response is going to be. We can't anticipate that. So just because a client has flown around or has driven long distances before, doesn't mean that when we're in a state of emergency, when they're going to an area that they've never been to, when they're dieting, when they're in this already sympathetic state, that they're not going to have a response. So I'd rather predict the response and say, listen, let's think about the worst of, you know, the worst of the situations. You get highly stressed, you start retaining water, you're not able to, to glycogen load, you're not, you know, you're trying to find places to to train and you're not able to, and you're really not able to follow things or get me check-ins. Really, it's not an ideal situation. Whereas last week, I literally walked him through the process from Thursday through Saturday when I was there, looking at him meal by meal, you know, everything was, was dialed in and I was in the state or I was in the, um, audience when he went on stage, I was there right before he pumped up. So it was the ideal circumstance to bring his best look. And what a lot of people don't realize is when they see pictures of these competitors or they see the stage shots, they look like that for an hour of the day. And so it really is so time. Like that's the biggest difference between a lifestyle client or a photo shoot and, and a competitor because there's water manipulations or sodium manipulations. There's electrolyte manipulations. It's very, it's, it's so time dependent and it's so time sensitive that just one thing can throw something off and you'll hear that from top level competitors. Like they missed their peak by 30 minutes. Like they looked great 30 minutes prior and they didn't get on stage looking the same way that they did backstage. And so within that, I, I don't want him stressing about that. We did what we really wanted to accomplish, which the last two and a half years we've worked at bringing up specific body parts and we've more than done that. And also Anthony isn't dependent on competing for, you know, his income. And so I always make that apparent. Like I always, you know, reinforce him that this is not a means to an end. This isn't like his career. This is a part of something that he likes. And if it's going to add more stress to his life and take away from spending time with friends, family, and loved ones, maybe it's not worth it. So, you know, another coach, you know, obviously 
many coaches would have pushed them because we're already in the peak week. I was already doing deviations and manipulations and I was already knee deep into it. I've given this kid 110% for two and a half years and it looks good for me to get him on stage, but I had to do what was best. I always say I leave from the front within my clientele and I truly care. That's the first thing. Like no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And I truly care about Anthony and all my clients, Jeremiah, everyone that I work with. And so I'm going to put that above all else. Awesome. Cool guys, you guys ready to hop into some questions? Absolutely. Let's do it. Cool. All right. So let's go. Uh, this is one that we had saved from last time. So I struggle with knowing when to make changes to my training. How do you know when to add volume during a program? I'm assuming this is probably for uh, building muscle. So you want me? Yeah. You guys want me to go? Either either of you guys go first. Okay. Get all kind of just the things we're looking for. I mean, within this. Really, I am looking at, and again, we're assuming the individual's in a building phase first and foremost, because I think like the difference between our what phase of nutrition we're in is also important, right? Where if we're in a fat loss phase, yes, there might be a time and a place where we increase volume to an extent, but that is not going to be the place where it's going to be like, man, I really, really want to keep progressing. I'm expecting to like see crazy changes in your hack squat. And again, this is also going to depend on the depth of the diet, like how lean we are, but that's often a situation where, hey, if like we're this deep into the diet and we're making like continuing to make great progress, I'm stoked about that. But also we have to be realistic with how much progress we're expecting. And again, like what's the trade-off we're making if we're adding more volume? Is that actually something that you're going to be able to recover from? Or again, is like that increased stimulus going to be detrimental? So I think like the phase of nutrition we're in is very important. Now in a building phase from there with what I'm looking at is week to week, so we have clients leave notes, Jeff, as you're very well aware of weights lifted, reps performed. Then I also try to get pump and disruption. Um, some clients aren't quite as good <laughs> about filling that out consistently, no matter how frequently I bring it up. But typically I'm liking, I'm trying to get clients to rate like within each movement, what's your pump like, what's your disruption like within this movement. And then I'm looking at, okay, across the course of this mesocycle, or even like, I know something we talk about quite a bit, Jeff is like, all right, this is where you at, we're at in this, let's say we're at the zero to one RIR week of your mesocycle. And I, I also use different RIR progression schemes. Like for you, we use actually very similar to what I use with Brandon, which is we're progressing from like three RIR down to zero RIR across however many weeks. And I like to compare that to this week, the previous mesocycle, right? Okay. So like the final week of this meso versus final week, of the last meso. How did we progress? Has Jeff been able to add a couple reps or a bit of load? And with where you're at right now, like we're not expecting you to like, we added, I think we added two reps to your dumbbell bench press last mesocycle. And that in itself is something we're stoked about because you've been lifting for a long time. You have a ton of muscle tissue, but within that, I'm also looking at, okay, so first is this movement progressing? And I know they have a solid foundation of execution. So I'll also say like, if something isn't progressing the way we want it to, and we're not getting the pump or the disruption, the first thing I'm typically going to look at is a form video. I want to see how you execute this movement, because that's going to be one of the most important variables here before we just add volume or say like, Hey, let's try to throw another movement at this problem from there. Then I'm looking at how is like, if that's spot on intensity execution, is it a good place? Okay. How are we progressing within this movement, right? Are we seeing solid, like you're able to consistently add reps, how we'd expect or add load, how we expect. And then in that case, again, like from my perspective, like we do want some pump and some disruption, but I also think people can get a little bit too caught up in the sensation. And I would much rather focus on like, first and foremost, are we consistently getting stronger while maintaining good execution? And then again, are we getting a good pump and disruption? And then I also think like, 
it depends on are we really prioritizing this tissue? Because similarly for like some more advanced clients, if we are in more of a specialization phase, like for example, I think of one client where we're really prioritizing her lower body growing. Within that, her upper body volume is relatively low. I would say right around her maintenance volume, but I'm okay with like those movements progressing slower because we want to allocate a lot more of her volume and recovery resources to her lower body. So because of that, again, like even if her upper body strength isn't progressing all that quickly, that's more or less like if she can continue to progress and recover from that, great. But I'm not necessarily going to be too concerned if we're more or less seeing just maintenance there, like in this lower body specialization phase. Now from there, then when we're looking at, okay, we want to like, should I add volume or, or should I keep things the same? Typically first I would look at again, like, are we doing a good job managing stress, nutrition, things of that nature are all those factors dialed in from there. Does it seem like we have more room to add more volume, right? Are we in a good place to be able to add more or do again, I think we would kind of put this over this tipping point now from there then I'm typically going to look at like within, let's say you're doing three different movements for your chest. Okay. Are all of those kind of stalled out or is there one specific movement where like, Hey, maybe pump and disruption is a little bit lower here. Um, or maybe like these two chest movements are progressing well, but this one seems to kind of have stalled out. And for me personally, it would typically be like, okay, I will add a set here, but I also, I personally wouldn't be like, Hey, let's, we're going to add a set to all three of these movements because it's similarly, like if we're doing that and we're following like the progression scheme that Jeff's following and that I'm following, like that in itself, we're increasing the stimulus a bit week to week, just by pushing a little bit harder week to week. So like that, plus like three more sets to your chest is a large amount of volume. So typically I'll look at like, which of these movements is lagging the least. Okay. Let's add or lagging the most. Let's maybe add a set there again. If like pump isn't great, if disruption isn't, isn't great, or primarily if we're not, able, we're not like seeing consistent progression here. That's kind of how I go about it when it comes to adding volume. What do you guys have on that? Yeah, I, obviously, you know, you and I work together, so you've seen kind of like how I go about volume increases, and it's really based on an auto-regulatory manner. But for this person in particular, I would really, I would take more of a body part-specific approach where you look at, you know, look at all the lifts or all the exercises that you're doing for a body part. And if you see those are progressing, your recovery is high, like you're not overly sore, you're not having overlapping soreness, and your lifestyle factors are dialed in, your nutrition, you're in a surplus or at least at calorie maintenance, your sleep is dialed in, your stress management or your stress is well managed, then I'd suggest or I'd feel comfortable if you were my client on adding some sets, you know, adding some volume to make sure you aren't underdosing the stimulus. You know, you're making progress, your rate of recovery is right on point, and you have all the other factors within your lifestyle outside of the gym in a good place where you can you can stand to adapt to a higher stimulus of training. And then it, when I decide to do that with a client and I decide to add volume, it's generally only going to be a small increase. So I'm very into isolating variables and then tracking trends over time and really gauging that response. So I'm generally only going to increase by like 10 to 20% on that body part that we're specifically going after. So that would generally look like one to two sets added for that body part for that week. So it's not like this drastic increase because, you know, a lot of times people dress will, will put a set onto every single exercise for every single session of that body part. So say they're doing, you know, they're hitting a body part three times a week, you know, two to three exercises per session. That could be six to nine, you know, sets increased. It could almost double your volume if you were at 10 sets per week. So sometimes I feel like people don't get the most bang for their buck in terms of volume accumulation and set additions because they overdo it. So then they never see that 
actual tangible result from that because they've overdone the stimulus rather than taking a more titrated manner. So basically what I'm looking to do is, you know, slowly increase the volume, slowly increase that stimulus, monitor their progress, and then also look at, you know, how their recovery, how their progression within their sets, how their pump, how their soreness is from those set additions. Um, and so that would be the way that I would go about adding, you know, volume to a session or volume to a specific body part. And it would be really based on an auto-regulated manner. At this point, I don't do any preset, you know, set additions in terms of like a volume accumulation or a ramping um, with anyone, unless, you know, I have maybe a few clients I've been working with for years and I already know their threshold. So I might start them with an introductory cycle the first week of their mesocycle just to, you know, get them reacclimated to training after a, a deload week where their volume and intensity have been substantially lower. But then I'm ramping them back up to what we see as a, a sufficient and effective baseline volume. Yeah, no, great points uh, for both you guys. And mine's not going to be really any different. I, I would say just some things to kind of hit on there that you guys brought up that I think are super important. I think, uh, Jerry, you hit on this, the form videos I think are important because if you're just kind of not seeing that and you are just kind of throwing more volume at them, it's like if they're not executing the lift, that's probably the, the biggest issue there. And they can probably get way more out of, out of less, right? I think, I think if there's one takeaway, I, I feel like focusing on improving your quality there's probably some quality that you can work on, whether that's technique or pushing yourself a little bit more in each set before you have to go to adding in more volume. And I think people just kind of maybe push the, the volume a little too much. I know I used to as well, right? Like I'm definitely guilty of at some point, like just kind of being volume happy and just being like, oh, add more volume to myself and for uh, clients as well too. And I think that's one thing that I've changed my mind on for sure. And uh, I th yeah, I think the uh, technique is super important because again, if, you know, I, I feel like people kind of use this as like a, oh, I can do this much volume or I do this much volume. And it's like, honestly, I think it's, you know, just because you can do more volume, that's not necessarily better, right? You probably are going to have better gains if you can get away with doing less volume. At least I, I think so, right? Um, so I think, again, just kind of being careful there with like just adding volume, really looking at your technique um, and, and making sure that's dialed in before you just kind of go and, and add more Um so yeah, that's the biggest thing. And then, and then recovery too, right? Like you guys said, auto-regulation is important to like, you know, making sure they're recovering from like making sure they're eating enough. And again, if it's in a cut or a fat loss phase, like that's where you're probably not going to add really much volume, maybe a little bit, but again, they're not bringing in as much food. The recovery is probably down. So that might not be the best time to do it. So really making sure that's on point too, and dialing those things in as well to sleep, stress management, you know, making sure they're eating plenty of food. So, um, yeah, I think we we summed that one up pretty well. I don't know if you guys had anything else you wanted to add to that. Yeah, I think it's just a final thought. I think it's incredibly rare that a new client starts and the thing that they need to see quicker progress is to do more volume. There are situations where it happens, but it's almost always, again, like a matter of your execution, your intensity, or your nutrition. So many people start their training six, six days a week or more. And it's incredibly rare, like, hey, we just need you doing more sets per week at least initially is the thing that's going to drive more progress. I, uh, listening to, uh, James Hoffman and Dr. Mike James Hoffman, when he, you know, when you hear somebody has these like super high training volumes, Hey, I'm doing these really high training volumes, like 30, 40 sets for a body part. And I'm not growing. He has his, a uh, skeptical eye, uh, that he, that he gives when he, uh, hears that. And I, I think definitely, I think if you're doing that many sets, you definitely need to look at your, uh, execution of, of the lift. So, um, cool. All right, let's go on to this next one here. So, uh, this is one that, that I got, you guys can start off with though. Uh, why is it hard to stick to macros during reverse, uh, rather than on a deficit? 
why is it harder to stick in macros on reverse? So my uh, under, so my understanding, it, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just ex- kind of explain what what I think this person is saying. So basically, I'm assuming that you know they're reversing out of a deficit, and it's just been a little bit tougher for them to stick to their their macros during that time. Um, so yeah, yeah. You know, honestly, uh, thinking about this, you know, generally we would think during the dieting phase, you'd make an assumption that during the dieting phase, when you're in the active deficit, it'd be harder to adhere. Your your hunger is getting heightened throughout the course of getting leaner. The leaner you get, the more body fat you lose. The less leptin production you have, the more ghrelin you produce. So generally, your hunger hormones are going to be much higher. But we also have, we are beings, we you know, human beings are organisms that look for instant gratification. And that's something we see within the context of a fat loss phase, especially towards the end. So like where I am at and where Jeremiah is at, like right now we're seeing daily progress. And that's a nice little dopamine hit. That's a reinforcement. That is saying, listen, what you have been doing, when I feel hungry, it's a reinforcement that I'm in a deficit. So I don't fear that. I embrace the hunger, especially because I always say, and I I talk to my clients often about this, dieting is a skill. And as with any skill, you get better over time. And it doesn't mean it's easier. It means it's more manageable. It's more bearable. It doesn't mean that you won't have to push yourself harder because the leaner and leaner you get, generally, the harder you're going to have to push. So the difficulty scale is higher, but your skill development and your skill level is higher as well. So it's almost like you've raised the threshold, that progressive you know, stimulus, essentially, that progressive overload, but you have higher capabilities. So now we have to perform better. Now we have to diet harder. However... Once the dieting phase is done, so many people struggle and we see that six out of seven dieters will lose a substantial amount of weight. However, up to 95% of people within three years of dieting will be in the recidivism rates, meaning that they will go back to exactly where they were, or oftentimes one third to two thirds will even regain more weight than they lost in the first place. And so I really think that comes more from a psychological aspect rather than a physiological aspect. So what I mean by that is once a dieting phase is done, you feel like you reached your destination. And I often talk to my clients about this. A lot of people look at a fat loss diet or the goal that they had, say it was an X amount of body weight, or they wanted to lose 20 pounds, or they wanted to get to X percent body fat. They had these tangible goals that they're they're driving themselves towards. And so they're really outcome oriented. They're very results focused. And so that's good for them in terms of an extrinsic motivation, but they don't value the process as much. And so that's a real issue that I try to address with my clients. I want them to be process oriented because process oriented makes sure that I, I try to, you know, conceptualize or analogize the process of fat loss as a checkpoint in your destination. So this is a long-term process and fitness doesn't end as soon as you get lean, because if you, you only want to get lean once and then rebound, like that's how you look at it. However, if you want to get lean and stay lean, you have to look at it as a checkpoint across your journey. And so we hit the checkpoint and we keep working on those skills. We keep maintaining those habits as we increase food intake, we increase, you know, the amount of satiating foods that we're eating currently. And we go three to four weeks, you know, where we don't reintroduce highly platable foods, which are going to drive passive overconsumption. But what a lot of times happens is during reverse, a lot of people, A, get a little bit too flexible with their food choices. So they're actually lowering their food volume, lowering the satiety or the fullness index of their diet by swapping out all these different food sources that they haven't had through the diet that they've been craving and that they're over-consuming. So they blow past their macros, but also maintenance is a nebulous goal. So when people think about maintenance, they don't think it's a progression. And I think it's it's highly undervalued in the fact that they don't see the maintenance of that fat loss as something that's a progression because they're not getting leaner. They're not seeing improvements, you know, whether it be in their scale weight or in their 
uh, the look in the mirror, but really what I try to get people to shift their mindset to is let's focus on now a performance mindset. So go from thinking only from a physique and visual aspect to now we're fueling performance. You're, you're looking to not only perform better in the gym, but to feel better as well as look better still. And so we're taking the results that we got within your fat loss phase. Now we're increasing your energy availability. We're reversing out of this dieting phase. We're getting you back to maintenance calories where we can reverse and mitigate many of these metabolic metabolic adaptations. And the new goal is to get better training performance so that we can reacquire some more muscle tissue so we can build a better version of ourselves. So it's really about that shift in mindset. But a lot of people miss out on that because they view the fat loss phase as the phase in which they get results. And then anything after that is almost like it's not as not quite as good. It's almost like if you started your dinner off with, you know, this massive, you know, brownie ice cream dessert, and then you went to like a chicken breast and, you know, a plate of rice. It's like, you know, it kind of went from a high to a low, but really when you look at it, you have to realize that you have to shift your focus in terms of goals. We can't always chase a carrot essentially, but we need to focus on the process on integrating and learning and reinforcing habits that have served us. And we take the habits that allowed us to be successful within the fat loss phase itself. And then we integrate them during that maintenance phase or during that period after the diet. Absolutely. I, I always like to tell clients, I think the post-diet phase is the most important time to be coached because so many people just can commit to, I can be super hungry for 12, 16 weeks. I can really buckle down. But for most people, it's again, that period post-diet where they haven't, because I mean, so 99% of people who start coaching with us are going to have successfully lost body fat in the past, even if their goal is more fat loss currently. Um, it's again, like, that post-diet period that most people have actually struggled with, right? And as Brandon said, like that is so much more of a challenge. It does present because we don't have this instant gratification of every week where we see ourselves get leaner. So I think within a situation like that, as he said, like shifting your focus to, hey, how is your performance in the gym? Are we seeing you consistently get stronger? Like is libido better? Um, are you able to have more of a social life? Are you getting better at these skills? Like I really like the frame. This is practicing maintenance, right? Are we getting better at these skills? Can you go out to like, if you see long-term your lifestyle being like having a couple meals out per week with your significant other, can we do those and maintain like that in itself is a win. So I think like it comes down to first establishing what are your new metrics for success and understanding that your new metrics for success are going to be different than what you were doing previously. Like that aspect is so important, but I think, I think because otherwise I think people look at it as like, okay, I got lean and the only metric for me like succeeding is, am I saying is lean or getting leaner, right? Where we have to shift the focus away from that, even like in a reverse diet, even if we perfectly nail it, a lot of times you're not going to be as lean as you were previously. And like, we have to accept that long-term for our health to be in the best place psychologically, just to like have a healthy relationship with your body with like, again, like more lifestyle flexibility and things of that nature. But I think you have to be willing to first, like take the time to look at like going forward. And again, I think this is where coaching is super helpful. Like, okay, we finished that season now in this season, again, like how are we determining whether you're successful or not? And as a coach, like constantly revisiting that with the client, like, okay, here's what we're seeing. Here's why I do still think this is going extremely well. But again, if it's, if you're only looking at like, am I as lean as I was at the end of the fat loss phase? Like that's an idea. Like I try to get across the clients. Like, again, even if the reverse goes perfectly, you are not going to look as lean as you did the last day of your most recent diet. Right. So if we're always comparing like your physique now to where you were then, 
you're always going to be frustrated unless you're constantly dieting, which again, we know isn't going to lead to the best physique development long-term. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I have too much else to add there. No, I, I like that you guys kind of brought up the like mental shift. I mean, that, that is probably tough, right? Where like this guy, whoever, I think it was a guy, he, he was mentioning that, you know, probably, you know, things were going well. He was having that daily uh, win by seeing, you know, himself getting leaner, whatever it may be. And then you switch to maintenance or reverse and it's just completely different. You kind of have to reframe that. Uh, so I think, I think that was great that you guys pointed that out. A um, couple things, uh, Brandon, you kind of mentioned this. This was where my mind went when I heard this was the hyper palatable foods, probably trying to throw in a little bit more like tasty foods than, you know, and again, you're still at this point where like, depending on how lean you got, I don't know how lean this person got, but obviously the leaner you are, you're still going to be at this just because a fat loss diet is over and you're eating a little bit more food. You're not just going to automatically like go back to like, you're, you're in a good spot now to just eat whatever you want. Like, I think again, that's that, again, that goes back to the mindset thing where it's like, Hey, the diet's over but that doesn't mean you can just go back to what you were doing before, right? You still want to make sure you have that lower palatability of food because you're just at a higher risk of, of overeating that stuff. And it's just, just so much tougher to moderate that, that type of food. And again, it's still very important there. One other, a uh, couple other things I was thinking too was potentially protein. I know with one of my clients, we did a, a reverse and she wanted to kind of bring her protein down just a little bit, not a ton. And we did, and then we did find that she was getting a little bit hungrier. So, so protein could potentially maybe be a little too low. Might want to look at protein. And then lastly, I would say you could, and Jeremiah, you hit on this was the fact that like, you know, people get to like a certain point and then they like want to stay there and they think that that's how they're going to look forever. And it's like, when you reverse out, like you're still not going to be look like you did the last day of your fat loss phase. Right. And so you could potentially be trying to like stay too lean. And that's part of your reason why you're just super hungry. So, um, I like that you brought that up because I think that's important too, like, that people understand that part of it because they do. I think people think that like, Oh, I'm going to go to maintenance. That means I can stay as lean and as depleted as I am at the end of the fat loss phase. But as we know, that's, that's not going to be sustainable. And you're likely going to gain a little bit of, of weight in that process. And probably it's probably a good thing, uh, that you're, that you're doing that as well too. Yeah, I, I want to expand upon two of the points you hit on, Jeff. Uh, first, the highly platable foods. Like we see that people have trouble moderating that even when they're not in a diet. So think about it. When you guys, when we go through diet and we lose a substantial amount of body fat, we are predisposed towards fat regain. Our fat cells are more insulin sensitive. They're more likely to uptake and to store glucose and fatty acids. So if you give them a surplus, they're going to be more likely to uh, hypertrophy, so get larger, as well as potentially go through hyperplasia, which is the creation of new body fat cells. So that's the first thing. We are predisposed towards what's called body fat overshooting. But besides that, the fact that eating highly platable foods, they're really hard to moderate, even if you're not in a dieted down state. But the fact that you are just getting out of a diet where you are at a leaner state than you've been at, you've been at lower calories than you've been at, you, your total daily energy expenditure is decreased, you're more likely to go into a surplus when exposing yourself to highly platable foods. And it's not to demonize foods as good or bad foods, but I always try to rationalize with my clients. I'm like, listen, you got to think about like the cost to benefit ratio of the choice that you make, especially when it comes to food composition. And so within that, there are foods that are better suited for your goals and less suited or, or not as favorable for your goals. And you have to decide what type of individual am I? Am I a moderator that can have a little square of chocolate, dark chocolate at the end of the day and not overdo it? And I'm fully satisfied from that? Or am I the average person, which is the majority of people, where they need to be more of an abstainer? Because if they do have a little bar of chocolate, they're going to end up overdoing it. And we actually see that cravings are not linked to the amount of the substance that we took in. It's actually due to the frequency in which we expose ourselves to it. So if you're not a moderator, 
trying to fit into your macros, you know, every day fitting in like uh, an ice cream or like an ice cream pop or something, it might be doing you more harm than good because you're driving up that dopamine response. You're really reinforcing those memories and that, um, that, you know, pleasure response that you get that food reward and you're having more of a hedonic response to food. And we even see in like research from Kevin Hall that even when people were at energy maintenance and eating ad libitum, meaning to fullness, those, you know, they took the same individuals and they put them in a crossover trial. And when they looked at ultra processed, highly platable foods versus minimally processed foods, those in the ultra processed, highly platable foods group ate over 500 calories a day more. So they gained 2.2 pounds of body fat during the course of this two weeks as compared to they actually went into, uh, you know, an unintentional deficit when eating minimally processed foods and they lost body fat. So we just have to think about it from the perspective of what is going to be the best approach to set myself up for success. Can I wait three to four weeks for me to increase my energy availability, get myself back up to a good maintenance threshold to lower my hunger, lower my cravings through eating more of the good, wholesome, you know, satiating foods that I'm eating. Think about it. If you go from eating, say, you know, 150 or 200 grams of carbs per day, and you get it back up to maintenance and it's 400 grams of carbs per day, but it's double the amount of the highly satiating potatoes or rice or vegetables or whole fruit that you're eating, you're going to be fully satiated. And then when you re-expose yourself to those highly playable foods, A, you're not going to be as in a depleted state where you're more predisposed to fat gain. B, you're going to have less of these cravings and these hedonic responses to food where you want to overconsume, and you're going to be able to moderate yourself more. So if you could just hang on for a little bit and really see, you know, the reverse diet or the maintenance phase after the diet or the diet after the diet, whatever you want to term it, it doesn't matter. You know, there's a lot of controversy right now in our industry saying, you know, maybe it should be, it shouldn't be called a reverse diet or it's a recovery diet. Whatever you guys want to term it, it doesn't matter. Have a plan for after the diet because that's how you set yourself up for success. Just like 98% of those in national weight controlled registry are successful because they went on a diet. You know, there's a reason 95% of dieters fail diets in terms of the post-dieting phase, and it's because they don't have a plan. So, you know, make some decisions, work with a coach. That's another thing that I think is is a large, I don't want to say, I guess, uh, a common mistake where people will hire someone, and I get this all the time, and, and now I, I don't allow that within the context of my coaching, but they'll hire you for a diet. They'll hire a coach for the diet, but they don't hire them for after. So it's like once they get to their goal, they're done with coaching. They took got a 12-week package. This was extremely prominent within the contest prep world as well as within coaching years ago. And I put a stop to that, and I always tell my clients, you know, we have at least 48 weeks after that that you're obligated to work with me because if you want me to take you through a fat loss diet, I'm not going to leave you hanging in terms of what's most important because the diet after the diet is just as important as the fat loss diet itself. And so it's not just about getting your results, but helping you sustain and maintain those results. So I think a lot of people do themselves an injustice by not having a coach that keeps them accountable, by not having a plan for action after. So yeah, it's really hard to stick to your macros because you kind of just went from having a structured plan and then winging it after when you're least likely to be in a good position to wing it, to eat intuitively to listen to your hunger cues. So you've essentially gone from setting yourself up for success for results and then doing the exact opposite and really predisposing yourself towards losing the results that you just worked so hard to gain. Yeah. And that's probably what most people don't want to hear. They probably don't want to hear that they have to have a fat loss phase. And then the phase after is just as important, but you know, it, it is right. And I, I think the research show, shows how important it is to have that phase afterwards uh, to reverse you out of, of a diet. And like you said, 
it's all semantics at this point of like, oh, reverse, whatever. It's it it does get kind of frustrating because it's like people kind of put like these things and they think there's like one way to do it. It's just like it's just a name to something, right? There's there's different ways to to do it, right? So cool. Uh Jeremiah, did you have any any other insight or anything uh, on this? One. I think we covered that one pretty well. Cool. All right. Let's go on to the next one. Uh, what are some tips for staying on point with your nutrition when you're traveling? I think I'll open this one up because I just got back from traveling first and foremost. And then other than that, uh, for anyone that doesn't know, I spent a large time in the sports nutrition industry. So for six years, actually throughout my, my adulthood, I spent 65 to 75,000 miles on the road. So I've been able to learn this firsthand. I've been able to get a lot of experience traveling. And then I also work with a lot of busy, you know, working professionals that travel extensively for work, traveling nurses, surgeons. Um, I work with many military uh, veterans and people that are deployed all over the world, uh, all over the country and all over the world. So really when it comes down to it, it's about realizing that there's two different types of travel. So really how I look at this as there's travel for vacation or pleasure, and then there's travel for business. And we have to differentiate between the two because the approach that you take for each can be different. And so when you're going on a vacation, I generally recommend to my clients, hey, listen, let's get prepared. Let's make sure that if you can prep some food in advance or at least take some, like I I personally always, wherever I go, I always have easy items to pack and eat, ready to go items. That's going to be things like protein powder in a bag or even, you know, packets. I'm going to have protein bars that I know fit, you know, around my macronutrient, you know, um, targets. I'm going to have like something like uh, some produce. I'm going to have a bag of apples, something that isn't going to go bad. You know what I mean? I could easily throw it in the carry-on bag. I'm going to have some nuts, maybe some turkey jerky or beef jerky, maybe some RTDs. Um, So I'm going to have those type of stuff on me so that on the flight, if I get stopped for, so for instance, my flight coming home was supposed to be five hours. I was in the airport and in flight for 12 hours this past week. So it was quite elongated, but I had protein bars, I had protein shakes, Um, I also had uh, rice cakes on me. So I had things that were, you know, non-perishable and that I was able to rely on rather than having to order a meal or eat the, you know, crackers or the cookies, the biscuits and stuff like that, that was on the flight. So it's all about setting yourself up for success. When it comes to vacation, I always give clients the option. We look towards diet breaks or increasing energy availability really matters on the phase of the diet that they're in. But one thing I really do try to make sure is that they're cementing good habits and they're setting themselves up success when getting there. It's not that they can't eat off plan. It's that let's set yourself up in an environment that's going to really predispose you to minimizing the amount of potential damage that you do. So the first thing I always suggest is you find a place to stay, whether that be a hotel or an Airbnb that preferably has a kitchen. And this has always been a major key for me because it's something that I can, as soon as I land, I can go to a local grocery store and grab what I need. Generally, what I'm going to do personally is I pack my proteins in advance and I freeze them and I put them on my carry-on because I've had my luggage and this weekend it actually happened. I actually had my um, my check luggage lost. And so, you know, unfortunately that, that has been a, a hassle to say at least, but I always have food on my carry-on because that's, that's a big importance to me. It's something that I'm going to be able to rely on and I'm not going to have to rely on anyone else or any other inconvenient services. But even if you don't do that, you can easily find a local grocery store, get a few items. You know, there's easy like microwavable chicken. Even if you go to a hotel and all you have is a small fridge and a microwave, you can make do. You could do one minute rice, um, like quick rice. You could do 
you know, I always grab microwavable vegetables. I grab fruit. So really, and I grab bags of salad. Those are things that are easy to put together. You can do them even if you just have a fridge and a microwave, and it's going to go a long way and it's going to allow you to keep some of those fundamental meals. So those default meals that are throughout the course of the day. Another thing I suggest with clients, like if they're at a resort or they're at a hotel, take advantage of the hotel breakfast. Like that's a great opportunity. You can often find, like I do that, especially like maybe I'll get some nutrient dense items. Like I'll start my my day with a nice breakfast. And what I'll do is if I know I want to go out to dinner that night, I will have a hearty breakfast. I will have the oats that are there. You know, generally they're going to have some some yogurt. Maybe I'll put a protein shake with it. So I make sure I hit you know, my macronutrient targets, but then throughout the course of the day, I'm just going to do like protein shakes. So I'm going to keep things light, or maybe I'll just do protein veggie meals. I'll use some of the chicken breasts or turkey breasts that I brought with me. Um, even like another great option is deli turkey, super lean. Like you guys can get that at any, even like convenience stores. Like I, I've gotten them at convenience stores or at a grocery mart, like super easy. They have chicken breasts, 99% chicken breasts, uh, sliced, you know, deli chicken breasts, super convenient, quick, you know, no preparation within that. And so throughout the course of the day, I'll stay light on meals. You know, generally I'm, I'm doing activities. I'm, I'm going at resorts or in the case of business travel, like I was this past weekend, I'm busy with clients or I'm busy answering people or I'm going to different, you know, this past weekend, I was going to different sites within the, the contest itself. I had to go for tanning with, um, with Anthony. I had to go to his, um, his meetings and, and things of that sort, the athletes meetings. And so, you know, it can go a long way. And then you set yourself up for success because you had good meals throughout the day. So you, you stayed light, you, you manage your calorie budget well. And then with dinner, just simply plan ahead. Like I always, when I know I'm going to go out to dinner with friends, family, or business associates, which generally within my previous career, that was, I had to go to business dinners. It was a requirement of my job within the context of being a national sales manager. I would always plan ahead and look at the menus just to see what they have to plan accordingly and to see how I was going to deviate from them or what you know specifications I was going to ask for. And then even other options like if you guys are on the road and you're traveling for business, this is especially like what I tell my my clients, like find a few different, whether it's fast food restaurants or go-to places that you can get food that you know, A, you digest well, B, it can hit your macronutrients and C, that they're convenient and easy for you to access. So for instance, Chick-fil-A is a great option. They're going to have grilled nuggets. You can get a salad. Uh, Panera has great salads. You can just get it with the dressing off the side. Chipotle. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but you can ask for completely, you know, plain dishes. Like I've done it many of times where they'll cook your chicken plain without oil and without butter, and you get the rice in the back before they add any oil to it and put it out. So if you just make these requests, you can get a bed of lettuce and tomatoes. And these are things that you could really moderate. And you could say, listen, you're not going to have the exact gram amounts, but you could say, listen, let me just get a little scoop of, of um, you know, I want double chicken because I want to hit my protein intake, but I just want one scoop of, of the rice rather than, you know, filling that whole bowl up. And so there's many different options. Another great option, I'm from Jersey, so this is extremely prominent out here is diners. Like any diner you go to, you're able to get grilled chicken. I've gotten, you know, omelets every diner that I went to with fresh fruit. Like it's a way to set yourself up for success, but by having those fundamental meals and making sure that you're not overdoing it you know, the biggest, you know, issue that I see is that people will overdo it at every meal. And then they come back and having rebound. When I give my clients these, you know, simple tips, like, listen, stay light throughout the course of the day in terms of your calorie intake, moderate them. Then you can enjoy a dinner at night. It always goes so much more successfully. So these are, you know, just things that I've utilized with myself because I had to travel. You know, I spent sometimes 30 to 40 weeks on the road a year. 
So, and I was competing at the time. I was doing photo shoots. So I had to stay on point. And it doesn't mean that I was able to track everything down to the grand, meaning that I was 100% accurate, but I always made estimations. I always gave myself a 20% calorie buffer, meaning that if I went to a restaurant and I thought that they used oil, I always increased the calorie content of that meal by 20%. When in actuality, Jeremiah and I did a podcast on this recently, You know, we see up to 100% error margin in restaurant meals, meaning for restaurant meals said it had 500 calories, they've done bomb chlorometer tests, which is essentially where they put a, a food, you know, a, a meal into a bomb chlorometer, and they see how much heat it dissipates or how much heat it gives off. And it gives us the energy content estimation of food. And they've seen that it's double that. So 100% value would actually be so 500 calorie meal would be a 1000 calorie. But, you know, just play it safe, play those 20% error margins. We know that that's how it is with the FDA with packaged foods. So I always give myself that buffer and I'll just under eat or, or not under eat, but I'll, I'll say that that meal has 20% more than I expected, especially within fats and carbs, because generally the meals you get out at restaurants, they're going to be heavier in your fat and carb content rather than the protein content because protein is more expensive. So they're going to undershoot you on protein, despite what it says on the menu. If it says the macros is 40 grams of protein, probably going to be like 32. But if it says it has 70 grams of carbs, probably like 85. And then if it has like 50 grams of fat, might have 60 grams of fat rather. So just some simple tips. Well, real quick on that too. I've I had a, a client who worked in the restaurant industry. She told me too that like not only is that the case, right, where they're probably underestimating how many calories are in it, but they don't freaking moderate the serving sizes either. Like one serving size, you know, one serving size could be you know one and a half. The next time you get it, it's two. Like you just don't know, you know, as well, and that's going to add a ton of calories too potentially. So it's interesting. Uh, my best friend growing up, his family owned a chain of IHOPs, which you know is obviously a corporate restaurant that they have everything supposed to be standardized. And we used to go in the mornings, every morning, this was actually a good friend of mine, George, we grew up training together. So he had a gym at his home. That's actually where I started training. So we we're very big into it. And we were already tracking our macros and on bodybuilding.com forums, you know, in, in sophomore and junior year. So we were already tracking things. We we're following Lane Norton at the time. And we used to go to the various restaurants because they had them in different towns and get like the standard meals. And we would weigh them out because he had a scale in the back like that he had brought from his house. And we saw that in particular, even from the, now, mind you, they got it all shipped from IHOP itself. So when it was supposed to be a six ounce sirloin, it was all supposed to be, you know, shipped out six ounces, but we saw that there was differentiations between that. And it always like rung true with me, or it always stayed in the back of my head, having learned that early on that a restaurant meals, the portions aren't what they say they are. B we're in America where everything's supersized which we know that from movies as well as McDonald's or anything it may be, or if you go to other countries, you'll see that their portion sizes are much smaller than ours. And what we have to realize, especially I always tell my females this, unfortunately, there is no female and male size meals. So often it's going to be this large meal that like they don't, excuse me, they don't consider your total daily energy expenditure. They don't consider your maintenance calories. They don't consider your activity levels. So if you're eating to, you know, just clean the plate, like so many of us are raised to do, you're most likely, especially if you're a female, small female, I work with so many girls, you know, ladies that are 120 to 130 pounds trying to lose fat. And like when they go out to a restaurant meal, like they've blown their whole calories for the day within that meal because it's made for the average size male who's five foot nine, five foot 10, 200 pounds. And so we have to think about that in the context of a portion isn't what we see in front of us. A portion is what is, you know, designed or what is appropriate for you. And, and also think about the fact that 
they may put these calorie amounts or these calorie estimations on a menu, but the chef back there isn't measuring things out like we would in our home. They're trying to make things as tasty and palatable as possible for you in the cheapest way possible, which is generally to add butters and oils and things that are, you know, cheap preservatives. And they're trying to get you to eat more both in that meal as well as come back for more. So it, it benefits them just like with food, you know, corporate food marketing companies, it benefits them to make things as, you know, as, um, sensational and as delicious and as you know seductive as possible yeah unfortunately if if you're trying to lean out i mean that you just are going to really have to limit going out to eat i mean that's just the 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 unfortunate truth there with that i wanted to uh, just add a couple real quick uh some things you could do like brandon said protein i think it's super important because it's like it's just really hard to get when you go out to eat and when you go to places like I know you, you kind of mentioned the breakfast and like I'm thinking breakfast at like those hotels that like have that like confidential like free breakfast and like there's like re- rarely ever any protein like maybe some yogurt like you said maybe some milk but I feel like that's typically it right usually eggs as well yeah I mean if you go to like a good breakfast if they have like a good breakfast yeah they'll have some eggs right like and and, and that's good but definitely like you know make sure you prepare your protein for sure or have something with you because that's going to be um and and I can definitely I want to. Uh, the the deli meat I think is is great too because you can do so many different things with that. Um, a couple things that I wanted to add though, uh, I think steps like I know this was nutrition, but I, I think it kind of goes hand in hand. Like make sure you're still getting a good amount of activity in while you're gone. Like just make sure you're you're hitting that because we know that that does help regulate your appetite. So I think that that indirectly affects your nutrition. Um, but a couple things that you can do nutrition wise, slow down when eating. I think that. I think a lot of times people just kind of, and tastier foods are easy to eat super quick. And I know I struggle with this myself, but really slow down and chew up your food and savor it um, and enjoy what you're doing. So if you do have something that is kind of off your plan, you at least enjoy it because since you're already doing it, so just kind of slow down there. That's that's one thing that, and that also helps with digestion and, and uh, gut health too, just if you slow down. Also, you could do something where you pair something tasty with something like quote unquote healthier as well. So let's take a Chick-fil-A example. Maybe you do like the either uh, the the regular chicken sandwich and then you pair it with like some fruit or something like that. Um, whatever it may be, just get something that, you know, has some protein and then pair it maybe with something that's a little bit more nutrient dense. Last thing I wanted to say, I'm team uh, Chipotle over Qdoba. I don't know if you guys have either, but I'm team Chipotle. Lastly, uh, you mentioned Panera Bread. I got to bring this up. I'm from St. Louis. That's where it originated from. It's actually known as St. Louis Bread Co. here. So I just had to bring that up. STL represent. All right, I'm done. <laughs> Got that Panera bread. Brandon, <laughs> are you drinking iced tea right now? Diet iced tea, my friend. <laughs> Let's go. I love it. Uh, man, I think you guys really nailed it. Um, I'll just touch on the mindset side a little bit more. I think a lot, of, like a common thing I will hear with newer clients is, hey, I'm going on vacation, so I'm not going to have control over what I'm eating for the next week. One thing, this idea of internal versus external locus of control is something we always try to get across for our clients where we need to look at like, the P- we can either look at it as there's an external locus of control where basically so many of the events in your life are happening to you, you have no control or an internal locus of control, which is basically I have control over most everything. And the same thing when it comes to food, like it sounds harsh, but at the end of the day, even when you're on vacation, nobody is forcing anything down your throat, right? So you still do have control over the foods that you eat. And I think first and foremost, just like that shift in the mindset of like, hey, it's okay if you want to indulge a little bit, enjoy yourself a little bit more, but let's talk through how do you want to manage this trip? I think like just having someone think through that. And I, I'll say the same thing. Like if it's a meal out, talk me through, how do you want to manage this? Right? Like what trade-offs are you okay with making on one end? Do you want to be absolutely dialed in and nail your macros for every meal across this trip? 
in exchange for the quickest possible progress. On the flip side, are you okay with like, hey, maybe we're doing just good enough to maintain? Or maybe you're even okay with regressing a bit in exchange for like enjoying more tastier foods, maybe like having a little bit more food flexibility. Like, where do you fall in that spectrum? And I think just thinking through that before you go into the trip is so helpful. Um, I think when people don't give that any thought, it can really make it a lot harder. And then just considering like the, I like to call this the emotional value of meals, but almost it could be the idea that like every meal doesn't have to be a celebration where really similarly, I encourage clients to think through like, what do you think the most meaningful, the most meaningful meals on this trip to you are going to be right? Like when you're at breakfast and you're like, let's say you're at a resort, you're waking up, you're hungover. Do we really need to like, just because all this food is available at the buffet, do we need to eat 10 donuts or can we just go with like an egg white omelet, some fruit? And again, maybe your first couple of meals where they're not really like a celebration of your friends and being on vacation. Maybe everyone's just doing their own thing. Maybe we do just focus on eating protein and produce. And again, later in the day, maybe there is one meal per day where we are just indulging a little bit more. Right. And again, you've thought through the trade-offs of that beforehand, but from a mental perspective, I think you guys really nailed the logistics side of it. Those are just a couple things I like to discuss with clients as well. No, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because that is that is super important too, right? Like, but letting them know, like, for one, the trade-offs. I think that's important. You know, as our as a coach, I feel like that's a big role that we play. Is like, hey, here's you want to do it this way? That's fine. Here's the potential trade-off to doing that. But also, like you said, letting them know that they do have that control and nobody's forcing food. Uh, you know, then nobody's forcing them to eat certain foods. So no, I love that. I'm, I'm glad you hit on the the mental side of things because that's just as important. Um, cool. Any Anything else you guys wanted to add uh, to that? Cool. All right. So uh, I think we've got time for maybe one, one or two more here. So uh, do you count compound movements toward bicep, tricep trading volume? So uh, I, I personally don't. So I know that in the research, actually, if you look into the literature, that's actually how they, they um, count it. But um, I actually, I've done it many ways over the years. Initially, like if you look at Brad Schoenfeld's meta-analysis, that's how they counted it. Also in his high volume training studies, the 45 sets per week group, um, like they counted, you know, if you did a set of bench, it was a set for chest. It was a set for deltoids. It was a set for triceps. And I just don't think like, yes, those ancillary muscles are activated and worked, but they're not the primary mover in those compound movements. So I'd rather get a sufficient training volume from uh, muscle or from exercises that directly target that musculature, especially with things like arms, where a lot of people lag. If you notice, like I've worked with a lot of power athletes early in my coaching days, and generally they would lag in the triceps and biceps and some of the you know delts and the areas that they weren't directly targeting. So if your goal is hypertrophy, if it's bodybuilding, it's bu- building a physique, an aesthetic physique. I really think that having whether it be isolation work or direct compound movements for those. Um, for those muscle groups, those deltoids, the triceps, uh, biceps, they're going to be really advantageous to do so. So generally, I will count only direct volume for the target musculature that's activated and utilized from a exercise or movement in general. So that that applies to both compound and isolation movements. And um, there's James Kruger actually has uh, some interesting approach to this where he counts half sets. So I know at one point, or, you know, I don't know if he still does it this way. I know he he's no longer coaching, but I know he's put out articles regarding the fact that he will count, say, uh, bench press for half a set of triceps. I think that's getting, you know, I, I respect what he's done from a research perspective, but I think that gets a little bit too um, into the minutia for many people. So I'd rather just count direct volume. And generally what I'll do is for those smaller muscle groups, like larger muscle groups, I'm going to utilize a higher volume because they're larger. They have more... Um, 
total musculature to hit. So I'm going to utilize higher training volumes within those muscles. So your quadriceps, your, your back, your chest, things of that sort. And then for smaller muscle groups like biceps, triceps, deltoids, I might utilize a lower volume in comparison to those larger muscle groups. But I also do keep in mind that they are getting some residual crossover uh, activation and stimulus from those compound movements that I'm doing within the week. So I'm making sure that everything's within a threshold of volume where the client can both continue to improve and make progress within the the target lifts, but also that they're able to recover adequately. I think I do more or less the exact same thing. I don't count like half sets or anything of that nature. I think it gets a little bit overly complex, similar to what you said. Like I'm going to keep in mind, okay, our pressing movements are probably going to hit our front delts and we're probably going to work some triceps there. We're going to work a bit of biceps with our pulling movements. So like our bicep, tricep, front delt, rear delt volume isn't going to be nearly as high as it would be for like my chest volume or my volume for my lats or my back. But I think we take more or less the same approach there. Yeah, I, I agree with you guys. I think I think some people can like maybe overthink this as well and like think there's some like magical way to like do this. But I think the most important thing is to stay consistent with like how you do it. Like if you are going to like do it that way, that's fine. Like if and what I mean by do it that way is count the compound movements like you can do it that way, but then you just have to adjust for that. It's the same thing I feel like with like tracking calories. Like, yeah, we want it to be as accurate as possible. We know that there's likely going to be some air with it. So you just kind of have to like go off the person's like biofeedback and how they're feeling, right? Like for somebody, you know, you tell them 1200 calories and are they actually eating that? Probably not, but you're going off their biofeedback to make sure they're not like super hungry, things like that. And I feel like it's the same thing here where it's like, you can count it towards that way, but you just need to see how you're like recovering and things. And like Jeremiah said, uh, it just gets, I just feel like it would be super complex to like count all those towards it. Cause then you're like, well, I did this last time. You just, it just adds too much confusion. So I think it's easier to not count it that way. But if you do do it that way, that's fine. Just, you know, just stay consistent with it. Don't like change it up each time, each, each time you like write a new program or um, something like that. And plus like Brandon, you mentioned too, I know that, like you said, some guys uh, like more power uh, strength athletes, they have like smaller arms from my understanding, like you could do like, for example, like a bench press or something, and it will hit the triceps a little bit, but pretty sure they did a study on this where they had somebody that just did bench press. And then they had them do bench press plus like a, a tricep as well. And they had more growth in their triceps as well. So it's like, it's probably a good idea to add in some of that um, isolation type stuff too. And whatnot. So, um, yeah, that's my thoughts on, it. I don't know if you guys had any, uh, anything you wanted to follow up there with it. No, yeah. Like, even if we look at something like, say you were only doing, you were counting all your quadricep volume just from compounds. So only doing squats, we know that we wouldn't get as much rec them. So, uh, uh, rec them development as a result. Then if we did also an isolation movement, like a leg extension. So that's the benefit of having some exercise variety. And then also, you know, including more uh, movements into a session rather than just taking your compound movements and doing them for all. But we can even, you know, apply that to if I decided to count, say someone was doing 10 sets per week of uh, squats and because it's their thighs, they decided to count it for their hamstrings. Well, it's it's not going to be a great hamstring builder. And that's what we see with a lot of power athletes, like whether they're, they're you know, I worked with college football players. I've also worked with power lifters early on. So it's been quite some time since that, but they're not fully developed in terms of like, their total body isn't, you know, 
exactly aesthetic as many of us would shoot for. So if you want more of an aesthetic physique, you're really training for the look of your physique as well as the function. It makes more sense to include uh, movements that bring every muscle through both a full range of motion, but also both through a shortened and lengthened range. And that actually directly target those muscles, both from compound movements as well as isolation movements. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, I know that you guys got to hop off. So let's end it here with uh, kind of a fun one. Um, what what for your guys workouts? Are you guys, what do you guys listen to podcasts, audiobook, or music? I listen to a playlist called peaceful meditation when I train actually, you know, I can't, that reminds me of, I don't know if you guys saw Brian Borstein's story today, but his stories today of him working out, but he had this like weird, like meditation type music going on in the background. But anyways, I just wanted to, if I listen to anything with lyrics or a podcast, I just can't focus. Um, that's all normally honestly train in silence or else that's my go-to. Yeah. So honestly, I listen to one of two things. I will listen to either podcasts or I'll listen to educational lectures, which I know sounds super boring for people, but I'm someone that I train very early in the morning. Uh, I'm pretty sympathetically driven. So if I stay in, if I I listen to music, I will be in a, a heightened state of fight or flight the entire time. So the only time that I turn on actual songs from a track or from a playlist is during my top sets of, of exercises, which really get me in the zone. There is a performance, a cognitive and physical uh, performance benefit from listening to music that you like. Now, the one interesting thing is if you actually look into the music and performance literature, if you listen, and so this is the reason why I don't do this, I'll listen to a podcast, rather something that keeps me more in a parasympathetic state in between my sets so that I'm getting more restoration, I'm getting better recovery. But there's actually literature on performance benefits of music. And they actually show that if you listen to gym music that you don't like, it'll negatively impact and affect your performance. And so rather than just turning it off and not listening to anything, I would rather listen to a podcast or listen to an educational lecture, or listen to an audiobook. Oftentimes they are like self-development audiobooks. You know, many of times I've listened to David Goggins stuff or or Jocko Willink or something along the more self-development perspective rather than the physique perspective. But it's something that it just it's what I call mindfulness training. So it's filling my mind with with good uh, information as well as thoughts. Um, but I also want to avoid that potentially detrimental effect of listening to the shitty music that's in my gym at 5 a.m. So that's or, that's my rationale. Or or too, like, I, I listen to music most of the time. Like, during a deload, I'll try a podcast, but, like, I can't focus. So, like, I, I tried it last week during my deload, and it's just hard to, like, focus on, on the podcast. I don't know how you do that. But uh, I, I, think, I think maybe I heard Menno say this, too, where, like, with music, like, sometimes it can, like, kind of pump you up so much that then, like, you do a little bit more than, like, what you can recover from at times. Now I know we're that's probably- honestly what I what I I feel, and I actually will titrate. It's almost like I I utilize it as a performance enhancing, uh, you know, supplement. And so when I get towards the end of a, a mesocycle where I'm really pushing myself, not into overreaching, but close to overreaching, I will actually utilize music for longer in terms of my duration to really get those extra reps and really exceed, you know, the zero RRR that I'm on or hit R zero RRR, but with better performances. Yeah. It's super interesting stuff. I mean, who, who would have thought that like something like that could even happen now? Again, I think that that's my new Don't, don't like stress over that. Obviously if you're uh, listening to this, but something interesting to, to just look into. So cool guys. Well, another great episode. Um, is there any, anything you guys want to uh, leave off with here? Are we uh, pretty good? I think I'm good. Cool. Awesome. Well, we will uh, do this again next month. Talk to you guys soon. Better.